Isaiah 53. We're actually a, maybe a little a week early uh, in sort of setting into motion our Christmas celebrations. Uh, I didn't realize I was a week early until I'd gotten the tree down and uh, mentioned it to Hope, and she said, we don't do that till next <laughs> Sunday. So I said, well, we'll have, a, we'll have a preliminary introduction to the Christmas season. Uh, <clears throat> but thank you for being here today. Uh, I'll be coming, reading quite a few passages from Isaiah all the way back to chapter 48, uh, but I hope you'll understand my purpose this morning uh, as we launch out into our Christmas observation, ob observances uh, and all the things me and Hope were talking about, our schedule and how many, uh, how many not free uh, evenings we had throughout the se Christmas season. And uh, if you've been here a while, you always uh, hear me sort of lament uh, at the end of the Christmas season, how uh, you just you just seem to miss it somewhat, uh, and this is kind of tried to lay a, trying to lay a foundation for how uh, I hope uh, that we can actually know and experience Christmas joy, uh, the true joy of Christmas this season. Uh, I'm I'm amazed at how easily satisfied we are uh, with the quote Christmas spirit. Uh, I've even noticed myself. Uh, I started early kind of listening to some Christmas music and different things and, and I realized that there are some things that resonate with me and almost provide a sense of comfort. Uh, I remember when we were kids, my grandfather uh, would give us oranges, walnuts, uh, and a silver dollar in a brown paper poke. Uh, he called it a poke, not a bag. And I thought to myself, if someone would to, were to give me that today, there would be an immediate nostalgic sense of comfort from that because that was so much the practice and we associated it so much with good times with our family and uh, gathering together. And I think sometimes we transfer those feelings we get from those nostalgic moments into our lives and we substitute that for the Christmas spirit during the Christmas season. And I think that's why whenever the gifts are finally opened and the Christmas tree is taken down and the new year sets in motion, we, we wind up with this emptiness and this feeling as though we, we just lost sight of it. We, we caught a glimpse, but somewhere in the shuffle and the busyness of the season, we lost sight and we feel as though we failed to celebrate Christ this season. Uh, I don't want us to do that. And I thought about how we could try to prevent that, and, and that's why my heart was drawn to Isaiah 53. We always uh, come back to this passage. I make a point of that on our Lord's uh, Supper, Christmas Eve, Lord's Supper observance, because I want to set the context for that. But it's important to remember during Christmas as we experience all the, all the false and temporary comforts of nostalgia, uh, all the trappings that we add, whether it be Christmas trees with lights or garland or uh, certain foods, all the things we associate with that feeling of Christmas. Uh, it's important that we find a foundation under that to where those things won't be substituted for the real uh, experiencing of the joy and the blessing of Christmas. And I chose to do that through Isaiah 53, which is the 
what some Jews I understand in the past have called the forbidden chapter, but it speaks here of the suffering servant. We know as Christians that he's speaking specifically here of Christ himself. So I want to read that passage and then come back and look at some of these things. But Isaiah writes here, who has believed our, our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied." And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion <clears throat> with the great and will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. <clears throat> Father, we <clears throat> come before you this morning. Uh, depended as always upon you for understanding, for clarity, for truth. And Father, for the Spirit to, to discern these things. Lord, we enter into this season in which we remember the incarnation, the, uh, the coming to earth of, of God incarnate, the uh, putting on human flesh. Father, we're surrounded in this season by so many warm, comforting sights and scenes and even the Christmas carols that speak so profoundly of what's taking place in the incarnation and the life of Christ, we've minimized in some ways to be just accompaniment tracks to the nostalgic feeling that we try to stimulate through all sorts of different means. Father, rip that from us this year. Rip that false, temporary, self-manufactured comfort from us and Help us to see the foundation of the true comfort of the Christian, particularly in the incarnation, the birth of Christ. And Lord, I pray that it might be brought to bear upon us 
in these texts that we'll share this morning and in the preaching as well. For your name's sake and for the glory of Christ, we pray and in his name we ask. Amen. I was struck by this particular passage and I was actually reading in the Gospel of John and I'll get to that at the conclusion this morning. But I was thinking in terms of the message uh, here in, that he's speaking of in chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed uh, our report, the King James says, or, and who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And I was thinking, what is the message? Uh, certainly it's part of the message is Isaiah 53, but he seems to be referring back to what he's been saying. And he's saying uh, rhetorically in a sense, who's believed this? It's almost as if he's saying it's, it's so incredible, it's almost unbelievable. Who has believed our report? And then he adds to that, to whom has the arm of the Lord been manifested or been revealed? And that's really striking. And if you look in chapter 48 of Isaiah, verse 1 through 4, part of the message was Israel's resistance or their stubbornness to the mercies of God and all the, uh, the providential work of God in preserving his people. But those verses say, Hear this, O house of Jacob, and who are named Israel, who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Why, he says, because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is in an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. Therefore I declared them to you long ago, before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, my idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. So part of the message was in regards to the hard-heartedness and the stubbornness of Israel, his people. And when he declares this message, he's asking the question, who has believed this? You go on in your unbelief. In fact, if you go back to chapter 6, when Isaiah's calling to go preach to the people, he's explicitly told by God that the preaching itself will silence or will deafen and blind the people to the message. And so they were not hearing it. And so it was throughout the history of Israel until we finally get to Malachi's last word before the 400 and some year intertestamental period of silence where there was no new word from God to his people. And there was this long, silent pause just before the coming of Christ. So part of the message was Israel's obstinacy. Another part of the message you see in verse 9 through 11, but God and more, but God speaks here in regards to his mercy. He says, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath and for the praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. So God had been merciful time and time again. And in fact, he had refined them to a certain degree through their suffering. But God, God's name and his glory is at stake here. There is no, 
by rights they ought to have been disregarded, the covenant disregarded because they had merited that sort of wrath. But God had been merciful over and over and over again to his people for the sake of his name. And I love it where he says, I will not give my glory to another. So we have a message in regards to God's mercy and God's God's vindication, as it were, of his own glory. In chapters 48 and also 49 uh, through 49, particularly verse 6, he speaks here of a message of deliverance. As I say, throughout 48, beginning in verse 12 and following, he speaks of his deliverance to his people Israel. In chapter 49, it extends even beyond to that, where he says in verse 6, I think verse 6, yes, He says, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved one of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations. We assign that and understand that to be Christ, the servant, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So that's the message. That's part of the message that Isaiah is referring to in chapter 53. God is extending now deliverance, even salvation, not only to his people, but into the Gentile nations. And that encompasses all of us. In chapter 50, we get a little more introduction to the servant himself. But in verses 4 through 10, I want to read these, but God helps his servant here. You'll recognize these parallels or these inferences, as it were, to Christ himself. He says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. He who is he who condemns me. Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. He goes on to mock those who had trusting in their fires that they were kindling. And he says to them, walk by the light of your fires that you've kindled. And so there's a mockery there, but He introduces this servant of God here. In chapter 51, verses 4 through 8, he mentions here the righteousness, the message of the righteousness of God going forth. He says in those verses, Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the people's. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. Pay attention to the word arms there. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will await expectantly. 
Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its, its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. That's part of the message. This is the message I think that Isaiah is referring to when he asked rhetorically, who has believed this? Who has believed this? Who has, who has seen or had revealed to them the arm of the Lord? He's asking rhetorically there because it, it is incredibly, uh, almost unbelievable. In chapter 51, verses 21 to 22 particularly, you see here the wrath being removed, this promise of the wrath being removed. He says to his people, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted <coughs> who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. That's the message. The cup of God's anger and the chalice of his wrath is being removed. He says to them here, in this day you will no longer drink of this wrath. And so there is a promise here of this removal of wrath. In chapter 52, verse 3 and verse 10, there is this hope and this redemption spoken of in that chapter. In verse 3, he writes here, For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. In verse 10, he gets even more clear. He says, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Notice in Isaiah 53, he says, to whom uh, who has believed this message and to whom has this arm been revealed? It's incredible. It's, it's almost unbelievable. In fact, in fact, it has to be believed and it has to be revealed for them to understand it or to even know it. So he asked that question. And in particularly chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, it is as though the servant of God here is being introduced, the one we're going to learn about in Isaiah 53. It's said of the servant, behold, my servant will prosper he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many, many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. King will shut their mouths on account of him for what, not had, had, not, what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. And I say all that to, to lead up to Isaiah 53 because... This is the message that he was preaching. And if you go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, when the Lord says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me, here am I, send me after his purification. The Lord tells him to go preach this message. And, and through the preaching of it, you will be the instrument of the hardening of their hearts and the blinding of their eyes and the deafening of their ears so that, so that they might, as it were, bring upon themselves the judgment. And so Isaiah's preaching a message that he knows already is going to contribute to the hardness of the very ones who will ultimately and in the long run bring about the very death of this servant, this arm of God revealed here. 
And see, to me, this is central, central to Christmas joy in that the baby in the manger and the emphasis we put on the incarnation are, are only significant in that, in that this baby is coming to fulfill this role. Somebody mentioned to me this morning, I think the quarterly spoke of, the, uh, of almost an Easter message and I was sharing and I said, that's quite relevant to Christmas joy. In fact, there's nothing more relevant to the incarnation than the cross. And it's prophesied some 700 years before Jesus ever comes onto the scene that the servant of God through whom these promises are, or to whom these promises are given and through whom they might be brought to pass in Israel and to the Gentiles is this very one who comes Christ. And so it's critical to our Christian joy. So that's the message, unbelievable as it were, and in, indicated by God's own revelation. But in chapter 3, 53, we began to read again of this message and this arm of the Lord being revealed. I quoted a moment ago from Isaiah 6, if you want to look at that, 8 and uh, verse 11. Particularly in 11, after the Lord tells Isaiah in regards to the effect of his, his preaching, uh, Isaiah says to the Lord, how long? How long am I to preach this message that they're not receiving and that has not been revealed to them? How long shall I blind this people by the preaching of this message? And God gives him an indication of, of the length of time that that is to be done. And in fact, Isaiah through his own lifetime and through his writings by the word of God has been preaching it all the way up until the time of Jesus coming. But I want to look at the beginning of this servant, this arm of the Lord that is revealed. You see that in verse 2. It says of this servant, these are, these are things I, I want to apply to the manger. Uh, when you gather around and, and you think in terms of the Christmas story and God's greatest gift to man and all the things that we attach to the baby in the manger, I want you to remember this. Because of the baby in the manger, it is said here that he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. So we're thinking here of this, this beginning, as it were, of this servant of the Lord indicated, first of all, that he grew. Well, if there's a growth, there must be a beginning of that growth. And so there is a, I think implied here, there is a, a birth. There is a, an origination in the flesh of this servant of God, of this revelation of the strength of God Almighty manifest now in the person that is going to grow. It also indicates somewhat of a progression here. There is a natural progression. He's going to grow. He's growing and I think that points directly to the incarnation. This is not going to be a Messiah, a message of a Messiah who just manifests himself from heaven as a conquering king and overthrows all the oppressors and delivers his people. He's coming into the earth in the most vulnerable condition ever as a child through the womb of a virgin. And this child is going to grow. He's going to grow just like the little children grow. And so you're already speaking of the incarnation of Christmas here in this very first verse of Isaiah 53. 
Notice as well that it says he's going to grow up before him. I think he means here in the sense of under the care, in the presence of God Almighty, the Father. This, this, this arm of the Lord who's going to be revealed is coming into the world through the means of birth and he will grow and mature and he will be in flesh, in human flesh. But he grows and he matures in the very presence of God Almighty under the watchful care of the Father. No one will take this one's life unless this one lays his life down. He is under the protection of the Father. So the baby in the manger who comes into the world through the virgin's womb and grows in stature and wisdom as a man and in favor as a man, this same one is growing up in the very sight and under the watch care of his Father. This is the baby in the manger. In fact, you think about the nativity story and all the, all the providence of God at work to preserve the life of this one. The, the, the exit from Nazareth to Bethlehem and from Bethlehem back, back to Nazareth and then diverted to Egypt and then ultimately back to Nazareth. God was moving the Son of God around and pres- preserving Him. So He's under the watchful care of the Father. He's growing up before Him. I was struck by the phrase here, as a tender shoot. Uh, that's, that's young, that's, that's vulnerability. And I think it speaks of his humanity, his fleshliness, and the vulnerability of the flesh of Christ. He was a man. He's not, a, he's not some deified uh, spirit just borrowing a body. He was God incarnate, God taking upon himself flesh. And that flesh was human flesh. And it sweat and it bled. And it suffered pain and it, it felt the realities of what it is to be in the human flesh. He grew up before him in this vulnerable state, this eternal Son of God growing up now, maturing and processing through the physical existence, feeling the vulnerabilities of the human flesh. This would be the baby in the, in the womb, tender and vulnerable and dependent in so many ways. Identifying with us, I would say. He says as well, he's a a root out of parched ground and probably some parallelism there in regards to the root, but I thought it was interesting, out of parched ground. That's, That's the last place you would expect to see a root coming up. Parched ground. And it might suggest something about the arrival of this one coming from a place that would not be expected. Certainly a stable in Bethlehem. Certainly it was prophesied, but no one looking for the great King Messiah who would rescue his people would be looking in a feed trough in a manger in Bethlehem for him. Like a root, he came out up out of parched ground. It's true that God's providence, He came in the perfect of time. He came in the timing of the Father. But by men's standard, it was, not, it, was, it was unexpected in many ways. It was Roman occupation at that time, and there was a relative peace they call the Pax Romana. And so there were a lot of things lending to the spreading of the gospel, but it didn't look like an ideal time, perhaps, for this Messiah to be coming up, and certainly coming up in this way. But this is the beginning of this arm of the Lord who is to be revealed, the one whose existence is unbelievable, the ones believing the report. Notice in verse 2 as well, and following his common appearance, he says here that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appears that we should be attracted to him. 
I've always thought what a contrast that is to portrayals of the nativity that we see. We see these, uh, these visions here and their halos or halos over Jesus, their radiant light coming from the sky shining upon the child there. Uh, there, there, are other, there are other ways that we in literature and in film and in, and in prose, we magnify the identity of Christ. I understand that. But the Jesus who came into the world as this tender shoot and a root out of parts ground, you wouldn't have recognized him as anything other than another Jewish child. Had all the same markings and swellings and, and, and blueness of a baby who made his way through the narrow channel leading out from the womb. He had all the same indications that he was another Jewish baby. He had no stately form or no, no inherent majesty in his appearance that we would look at him. This word here that we would uh, literally means that we would desire him. There was nothing about him that looked stately or even majestic. And certainly not anything that we would be desiring towards him. We would look at him and we would nonchalantly turn our head and walk away. Because he's just another kid. This is the baby in the womb. And so these romanticized views of, of some glowing light around the baby in the feed trough and, and some identifying mark that this was indeed the Messiah. Yes, there were prophecies fulfilled and God identified him through these things as Messiah. But to look at him, he doesn't look like a king to me and he certainly doesn't come into the world as I would expect a king to come into the world. He looks rather much like most people. Nothing out of the ordinary. I remember as a young Christian, that was challenging for me to believe because I held such a high view as a new Christian of the glory of Christ. It's almost as if in his flesh he walked around and there was glory emanating out from him and all the hard-hearted, wicked sinners just closed their eyes to it. And certainly there is a divinely revealed glory of Christ that we see through the grace and mercy of God. But to look upon him as a man apart from some, sort, some incidents when he revealed his glory like the transfiguration and perhaps at other times, he looked all part and parcel like every other man. He was human. This is the servant of God. He is not noteworthy nor desirable according to that text. Strikingly, look at his acceptance in this world. Verse 3. It says here he was despised and forsaken of man, uh, this baby in the manger. This is, this, is what he's, this is what's going to happen. This is going to be his life. He was despised and forsaken of man, of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. And we despised him. And we did not esteem him, he says. Several descriptions, verse 3 and 4, he's called here, or his acceptance, he's despised, forsaken by men, and unesteemed in many ways. I thought that was interesting. For a time, we know in the ministry of Jesus, he was greatly received. He was a wonderful, refreshing presence. In fact, they began to crowd around him when they began to see his miracles. I remember particularly one place where Jesus turns to the crowds that have amassed around him and he says to them, you're following me because you ate the bread and your bellies are full. After he fed the 5,000. 
And he was exactly right. And from that time, he began to speak in ways that alienated them. And, and he would say things like, he who does not eat of my flesh uh, cannot be my disciple. And he who does not drink my blood. And they, they, they recalled it that to drink blood, to eat flesh cannibalism, they recalled and many began to fall away at that point. But Jesus enjoyed his seasons of favorability. But in the long run and in the greater scope of his life and ministry, yes, he was viewed as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was rejected by so many that once found him refreshing. I never can get past the triumphal entry and the way they treat him there. And Hosanna, the King of David, and they lay out the palm branches and their jackets. And there's a great celebration. And Jesus absolutely says, absolutely ordained that they do it. If they don't do it, the very rocks will cry out. They must identify me this way. But in a very short few days, those same crowds were crying crucify, demanding the death of this one they just hailed as son of David and Hosanna to the Lord. So yes, he was not accepted. He was despised and forsaken and his suffering abandoned altogether, it seems. This is the destiny of the child in the manger. And to me, that's, what, that's why Christmas ought to be a sobering, yes, joyful, but get to the joy through faith and by considering the, the destiny of the child in the manger. Don't let the warm feelings crowd out the harsh, dark, cold reality of the sufferings that this child is destined to endure. If you leave that out, whatever joy you find is shallow, and it'll be fleeting and soon gone as soon as the presents are open and the lights are turned off. And once again, you'll say, we missed the spirit of Christmas all over again. This is where the son is going. Look at his experience. You see this in verses 3 and 4, 5, and then 7 through 8. You see that? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Strikingly, in verse 4, it clarifies something for us. Surely, he says, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. So the sorrows and grief were not originating with him. They were not inherent to him. He was bearing something outside of himself that he had taken to himself. Our sorrows and our griefs he were bore. But yet we looked at him and he said, he's a man of sorrows and full of grief. I can't even look at him. He's so bad. That's yours. That's yours. You turn your head away from the one who is a mirror of your own griefs and your own sorrows and all of your sinfulness and you view him as despised and stricken and afflicted by God while you go away scot-free in your self-righteousness. This is the baby in the manger. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but it's, it's because he was carrying yours your griefs, and your sorrows. In verse 5, you see as well that he was wounded. His experience here, he was pierced through, he says, for our transgressions. In verse 5 again, he says, he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5 again, he was chastened as it well uh, for our well-being fell upon him. It says again in verse 15, he was scourged. Uh, scourging is, uh, I think I've shared this before, but the first time I saw the movie, The Passion, went and watched that, and that was the one place in the movie, even apart from the crucifixion itself, where I, I literally verbally erupted, stop! And they just kept beating and beating and ripping and ripping the flesh of Christ, and my, my heart was angered by that. 
And at the moment I uttered the word stop loud enough for people around me to look around at me, the, the moment I said that, the Spirit, I think, convicted and pierced my heart and says, no, it's not. It takes every strike. So sit there and watch and bear it because every one of them is what's due you. And so I sat there in tears in that theater and watched the portrayal of what it must have looked like to rip my Savior's flesh apart, knowing that everyone belonged to me and you. This is how, this is his experience. The baby in the manger, this is going to be his. He owns this. He came for this. He didn't came to avoid it. He came specifically to endure it. There's no joy at Christmas if you don't get this. None at all. It's shallow and it's insulting and it's almost blasphemous to say, I had joy this Christmas and never once considered the cost of that joy. It says of us, we have turned like sheep, have gone astray. Verse 7, he says in that passage, he was oppressed, afflicted. This is his experience. Led like a lamb to slaughter. And then in verse 8, oppression and judgment he was taken away. Verse 8 as well, cut off, killed, separated from the land of the living. Buried. In verse 10, crushed. Verse 11, anguish of soul. These are the experiences of the baby in the manger. See, that's striking to me. I'll be honest with you. On Christmas Eve, this is what comes to bear on me after the busyness of the season. And there is a part of me that wants to, wants to rejoice, but there's another part of me that just wants to kneel and weep. Because when I consider that child so vulnerable coming into the world as this tender shoot and I understand that his destiny was to grow into a man and, and to live in fellowship with his father and in one moment in time take upon himself all my sins and the sins of the world of the many and endure the, the wrath due those things upon the cross and to suffer in such a way it makes me want to weep and at the same time it wants me to sh makes me want to shout for joy. Because you or I couldn't have endured it. This was the experience of the child in the manger. Notice his substitutionary life. You see that again in those same verses in chapter 4, uh, verses 4, 5, and in 8. But notice how often it says that he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All of his experiences were on our behalf. Chastened for our well-being, scourged, wounded for our healing, cut off from life because he endured the thing due us. That's, that speaks of the substitutionary presence and life and death of this one in the manger. I, I think about this. Uh, you heard the analogy before. The judge is in a courtroom. He declares the defendant guilty and, and, the, and he sentences him to jail. And suddenly the judge gets up and disrobes and comes down and takes the prisoner's place. And we've heard that used as an analogy for God and, and the mercy of God. There's one problem with that. The judge is a sinner. 
Don't care what court you stand in, though he may be sitting in judgment upon your criminal acts or your civil violations, the judge himself is a sinner. And so if he comes down and takes your punishment, he, he, has, he has his own just, justice mingled in within that, and there again he's only receiving justice due to that one person. And that's a poor analogy because Jesus is not only enduring your suffering, but our suffering. All that belongs to us, all the redeemed of God, every sin that everybody in this congregation ever committed, every, every corrupt thought you ever thought, all the guilt due, every single one of those just for us in this room are brought to bear upon the sinless, perfect Christ who never knew sin of His own. And add to that the millions and the multitudes who have trusted in Christ through the years. All of their sins. The weight, literally the sin of the world being born by this baby in the manger. That's where he's headed. That's where he's going. And I can't look at the manger and you shouldn't look at the manger without understanding that. Because if you miss that, you're going to get the warm fuzzies and the cute little baby in the manger. And you're going to miss the glory of that baby in the manger. You're going to miss the glory that the angels were announcing when they said, Glory to God. Highest glory to God. And on earth, peace. And God, goodwill to those with whom He is pleased. This is the manifestation of the very peace of God lying before them. No wonder they were singing praises and the multitude of the heavenly host chimed in while most of the world was silent in their sleep, unawares of what the baby in the manger would become for them. Substitutionary life. In verses 7, 10, 10 and 12, you also see here his willful sacrifice. It says he was led to the slaughter silently. He didn't go fighting. That's why he rebuked Peter who was ready to fight. Whips out his sword, takes off Malchus's ear. and Jesus says, stop that. That's in violation of why I came. I didn't come to be taken by force against my will. I came to be willingly led as that lamb all the way to the sacrificial offer. Peter, you will not hinder that. In fact, if you're worried about it, Peter, I could call on 12 legions of angels right now and they would pour out of the heavens and bring an end to the evil in this world altogether. But that would include you, Peter, and all the disciples. So that's not the path we're taking here. The baby in the manger willfully and willingly walked this path. He willingly let them take him to the cross. After having been beaten and drained of his physical strength and, and drugged all the way, all around and abused and balked in such a way, willfully and without comment, without, without protest, he let them lead him to this place of sacrifice. That's the baby. I was telling Hope, in a very real sense, in this sinful world, every baby brought into this world has the same destiny ahead of them, death. Uh, but they are, they, are, they are earning of this death in their sinfulness. That is the condition of man and his fallen humanity. That's very different from the death of this baby. This baby came into the world destined to die. 
But not, not because death would have some claim upon him in his person, but that he would take to himself the very thing that would give death power over him, namely sin. The wages of sin is death. And because he had those sins and took those sins to himself, he temporarily yielded to the power of death to wreak justice or to bring about the just rewards of those sins and to pull him, as it were, down into the grave. He didn't recall at that. He walked to that. This baby in the manger whose death was like no other, no other death. He rendered himself, verse 10, it says, he rendered himself a guilt offering. It says of this servant, this baby in the manger who was prophesied some 700 years before the baby ever arrived in the manger. He, he poured himself out, it says in verse 12, to death. Striking, he was numbered in doing so with the transgressors, it says in that verse. You see that in verse 10? Therefore I will lot him a portion because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgression. He found his identity in this death with the transgressors. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, this baby in the manger. That's just sobering to me in light of the Christmas celebration. In fact, it puts a foundation under everything we ought to be doing and every observance we do throughout Christmas. No matter how warm and nostalgic you may feel, recognize where the, where the feeling is coming from there. Set it aside and say that, that all may have its personal place. But there's one comfort that I'm striving to encounter in this Christmas season. And this is the comfort provided by this, this Christ, this arm of the Lord. Lord revealed. I think the joy of Christmas will be very differently. In verses 9 and 11, you see his purity there indicated. In verse 9, he says, he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then again, in verse 11, it says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I can't reiterate, and it's almost unimaginable to us to conceive of what life must be without sin but Jesus had none no deceit no self-deceit no deceit of others no deception whatsoever present in the life of Jesus life living life perfectly submissive to the father and walking in the fullness of the law fulfilling every point of the law no sin no sin this was the life of the baby who was going to the cross. We can't even conceive of that because in my most righteous and holy moment in my flesh, I'm full of sin. I, there is all sorts of darkness hiding away in my heart. And if the Lord would reveal to me in a one single moment the, the remaining remnants of sinfulness and sinful inclination in my, my life, it would probably overwhelm me to the point of death of what sin still remains in light of what sacrifice has been made. But this baby who grew into a man had none of that. No sin. No sin. If anything, his, his holiness would have been worth the death of every sinner, the destruction of every sinner that ever lived to vindicate such holiness. But in this case, he laid it aside in some sense and took upon himself our sins. And literally in that sense became sin for us. His purity, really quickly here, his sufficiency. Verse 10, you see that in 11. 
Uh, I think it's speaking here of his perfections, yes, but also of his sacrifice. It says in verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Gives us an indication of what's the origination of the, of the, of the suffering, though there were instruments of it. Where does it originate with? Here's the question. To whom was the debt owed? Was it Satan who said that in the day you eat thereof you shall surely die? Was it Satan who said the wages of sin is death? It is God who says brings the, brings the, the penalty in place. And though the instruments might be Satan himself and Judah and the, and the hands that crucified Christ, they were carrying out the providential will of the Father and in agreement with the Son that he would be the sin-bearing sacrifice. And the Lord would heap upon him all the, all the guilt and the, and the suffering due for the guilt upon that. The Lord, he says, would crush him, was pleased to crush him, in fact. And as a result, he says there that he would see it, the, the Lord, that God would see it and be satisfied, be observable to the Father, recognizable, marked by the Father, and by it to be satisfied. Do you know that your death couldn't do that? All the death of every Christian that ever lived couldn't do that. Only the death of this baby in the manger who lived this life. Only his death could, could satisfy the father who was crushing. I had the imagery of this crushing weight incrementally or all at once laid upon this son of God, this, this God incarnate and seeing it bear down and crushing, 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 crush to the point to where it finally reaches the point to the father says, that's sufficient infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, sinned against by my own creation with infinite heinousness, do eternal condemnation there forever. Keep all that upon Christ. Let it crush him. And, and some point, at some point it gets to where the Father says, that's sufficient to vindicate my glory. That says something about the baby in the manger. It says something about the Christ upon the cross. There's one Christian hymn, I don't remember the name of it, but I'll remember the first lines, but let all mortal flesh keep silence. It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns because it communicates silence, quiet, sit and bow before the Lord and consider what has taken place in the incarnation. God has come to earth, took upon himself human flesh and submitted himself now to take upon himself the sins of the world and to fulfill the debt owed to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. What can I say in that moment that would weigh in or emphasize that in some greater way than just to sit in silence and to contemplate what's happening there. And I think this contemplation is part of that. His sufficiency is that the Lord will be satisfied and this righteous one will justify the many by bearing their iniquities. He goes on, I think, generally to say the speak of the inheritance of the kingdom and the victory won in Christ as well. He is sufficient and only he is sufficient. Your good works and charitable deeds this Christmas season are not sufficient to provide for what he's providing for. Your attendance here today is not sufficient to provide what he's provided for. Only Christ, only the baby in the manger, and only if he goes the way of the prophecy of this baby in the manger to the cross, and only if he goes in the way that he's going. Only that is sufficient. And it is eternal sufficient. 
And this is what struck me from John. You don't have to turn here, but I want to read this. In John chapter 12, you remember the Greeks were seeking Jesus and they bring him to him. And did Jesus, rather than saying, yes, sure, bring him in. Verse 23, he almost seems to ignore their request. And he says, Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then he says this, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Think about this. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. I mean, to me, that was just stunning to reread that again. What am I going to say in this moment? Deliver me? This is why I'm here. It would be, a, it would be a, akin to saying to God, I'm backing out. This is the moment that I've come for. This is the hour that I am come for. So rather than saying, deliver me, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death with which he was to die, crucifixion. The crowd then answered, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? I was thinking when I read that, I was thinking about saying, the baby in the manger. That's who this is. Unthinkable. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Harken me back to the Isaiah's passage. Who has believed this message? These things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And now, now the writer of the gospel connects this he says this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet when he spoke Lord who has believed our message that just that was stunning to me to read that again because he's going all the way back to this prophecy of Isaiah that was foretelling the nature of this servant who was to come who should have who should have interrupted any high thoughts of some ascending king that would conquer the oppressors that should have immediately identified God is God has chosen a very unique and unexpected means of deliverance and it is through a tender shoot growing up before him a sin bearer sacrifice a willful sacrifice it should have said all of those things but he says here even though he performed so many miracles, they weren't believing in him. And why was that? Because that's exactly what Isaiah was seeing when he said, who has believed our report and to whom has the alarm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. Wasn't revealed. So he's covered two things there. Who has believed our report? Our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus is referring back to that and saying the reason that they haven't believed, they haven't believed the message is because it hasn't been revealed to them. 
For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not believe with their eye or see with their eyes and perceive with their heart to be converted and I heal them. And this last verse, this was striking. These things, John tells us, Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. I'm convinced that when Isaiah wrote his prophecy, he, he had a clear view of what this arm of the Lord would be. He describes it. It's almost, even, even when you read his description, it's as if his mind's eye is, is seeing this, this cinematic view of the baby in the manger, the, the arrival, the growth, the maturity, the rejection, why he was rejected, the suffering. He's seen the life of Christ, even his death and his burial in a rich man's tomb. He saw the life of Christ unfolding in that moment and he was overwhelmed. And he began this revelation by saying, who has believed this message and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed. I'm seeing it clearly. Jesus, John says here, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And here's my point with that. You won't find the joy in this Christmas season unless you see his glory. And if you try to see his glory apart from his suffering and his work upon the cross, you will see a diminished glory and therefore will not know joy. And you will be forced, by the way, to substitute that feeling from some other source. Christmas tree, Santa, elf on the shelf, whatever you pick, you'll have to find something to substitute for that because you will have missed it if you don't see his glory. And to me, the Christmas particularly for Christians, ought to be about speaking and displaying and, and pointing to the glory of Christ. Because all the world can appreciate a little helpless baby who gives us the gift of life. But there, there are a rare few who can endure the thought of that baby growing into a man and walking to a cross in innocence and receiving to himself everything due us. The world balks at such a message as that because there's an injustice in that in their minds. But we know as Christians there's no injustice there. In fact, it's the vindication of the justice of God in that act. So I hope this is foundational and helpful for our celebrations of Christmas going forward to keep us grounded and keep us, help us to avoid the temptation of, of manufacturing some feeling uh, during the Christmas season as we think is appropriate, only to find out that it was insufficient at the end. Stand with me this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that was even sent to your people 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. And it stands today as a testimony to us as well who are here as we contemplate the incarnation. Lord, it's, it certainly isn't true. It isn't false to say that it's nearly as dark as it was at that time in our world today. Uh, even those who would name the name of Christ have some distorted view, some despicable doctrine of Christ and no Christ at all, therefore. And Father, I pray that as Christians, as we enter into this season where we'll be using the themes of Advent to, to think about and to meditate upon Christ uh, in the incarnation. Father, I pray that it will be grounded solidly in what Isaiah has, the message he has given us here, you have given us through Isaiah. And Lord, I do pray that our Christmas celebrations would be joyful and exuberant even, but Father, resting upon the right foundation, not some manufactured joy. 
because we all know that that always leaves us empty. And Father, we want the joy of Christ that he promised to leave with us. So help us this morning in these moments of invitation. Father, I just pray that you would speak to each heart according to what you are accomplishing there. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.